Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. It would be very easy these days to have contempt for celebrity culture and where it's taken us. But like it or not, sometimes celebrities, just by virtue of their talent, their fame, and their own ambition, are able to change the world. Whether it's making cracks in the glass ceiling, having us look at things we might not have seen, or simply modeling a very public life with lessons for us all, celebrities do sometimes provide us a window into ourselves. Such was the case with Joan Rivers. Whether in business, in comedy, or in life, she was a trailblazer. And now my guest, Leslie Bennett, gives her the biography she deserves in Last Girl Before Freeway. Leslie Bennett is the author of the national bestseller, The Feminine Mistake. She's a longtime Vanity Fair writer and former New York Times reporter. She's written for New York Magazine, Vogue, and The Nation. And it is my pleasure to welcome Leslie Bennett here to talk about Last Girl Before Freeway, The Life, Loves, Losses, and Liberation of Joan Rivers. Leslie, thanks so much for joining us. You're more than welcome. One of the things that permeates almost every page of the story of Joan Rivers is her incredible work ethic, the commitment that she made to whatever it was that she was doing, particularly comedy, and the degree to which she worked so hard at it. You know, I've been covering some of the most famous people on the planet for decades. And I mean, you know, everybody from presidents to movie stars to Nobel laureates. I don't think I have ever encountered a subject who was as driven as Joan Rivers from her earliest childhood. That woman's ambition and determination and need to succeed surpass anything I have ever seen. And as her life went on, you know, she became extremely successful, and then she crashed and burned in midlife and was completely ruined, and then made this astonishing comeback in her, you know, 60s and 70s as senior citizen. Um, what what kept on driving her both to perform and also to grow, to do new things, it is unlike anything I've ever uh, investigated. Where did that come from? Was there a sense that she was always running from something, or was, was she running no, towards something? No, I think she something? was running to something. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, everybody, you could argue that there's a rosebud in everybody's life, you know, the, the, the secret that unlocks the mystery of their character and their destiny. And, you know, hers was rooted in being a small child and having an uh, older sister, three years older, who the family considered to be prettier, smarter, blonder, and more popular. And Joan was tortured as a small child and felt uh, inadequate. She was thought she was plain. She was pudgy. And she discovered very early in a preschool play where she played a kitten with little uh, pink kitten ears that when she got on stage, uh, people loved her and they applauded. And that was like, uh, you know, uh, that turned her into a junkie basically from that age on because the adulation of uh, a crowd, the applause of an audience, was for her uh, the substitute for love that she sought for the rest of her life. That was the most, the purest and most intense form of feeling loved on the, you know, available on the planet. And talk about the way that morphed into what she began to see as the career path she would take. 
Well, she started out wanting to be a serious actress. She saw herself as, you know, some great thespian, but she couldn't get arrested. I mean, the first 10 years of her career were a story of such incredible rejection, failure, deprivation, degradation, and, uh, you know, she. everybody told her she wasn't pretty enough, she wasn't talented enough. Um, even her parents said, you're wasting your life, this is just a disaster. You know, they wanted her to find a nice Jewish husband and, and uh, have children and, and just, you know, forget this ridiculous dream of becoming a, a famous performer. And she kind of segued into comedy by accident. Um, she was so desperate when she made the rounds of the casting agencies in New York to try to get parts as an actress. She was so desperate to get attention that she, <laughs> a couple of times she crawled into a casting agency on her hands and knees. This is, of course, in her stock and girdle and high heels wearing white gloves and sort of sneaked a, a white gloved hand up to hand a rose to the secretary so the secretary would remember her. And one secretary finally said, you know, you're kind of funny. Maybe you should try comedy. So she started trying to get gigs and, you know, doing stand-up in, you know, Greenwich Village coffee houses and people didn't like her doing that either. But she kept working at it and honed her skills and, you know, developed a, a, a craft. It's a very, very exacting craft, comedy. And, you know, finally turned herself into a comic. Did she have outside influences as she began to turn herself into a comic? Where did she look for guidance? Well, it was a total boys club back then. There were really uh, scarcely any women who had succeeded in comedy. Phyllis Diller and Moms Mabley were out there, but you know, you had to sort of be a you know, Phyllis Diller was an attractive woman in her 30s, but she was wearing fright wigs and you know, dressing like a bag lady. And Joan was a sort of Barnard girl in a black dress and pearls um, who was looking for a husband, and she didn't want to make herself into, you know, some laughing stock. Uh, so there wasn't a lot of inspiration or opportunity uh, to be had from women. Uh, so she started trying to, you know, break into this very hostile boys' club. The men didn't really want the competition and weren't interested in what women had to say. But the main influence ultimately on her work was Lenny Bruce. When she saw Lenny Bruce uh, perform, she said it was an electrifying experience because, you know, he was this, he was just as, you know, far out there as you could get. He violated every obscenity law in the country. He was banned from clubs. But he was out there puncturing all the hypocrisies of a very buttoned-up era and she was just astounded by what he was saying on stage. And it really inspired her to become braver and to take on a lot of the taboos that prevailed in the 50s and early 60s. And those taboos were more unimaginable if you think of it as a woman trying to do what Lenny Bruce was doing. Well, absolutely. I mean, it was hard for, I mean, men, Lenny Bruce was, you know, severely punished legally and otherwise for saying the things he was saying on stage. But there was no chance of a woman. I mean, my God, the, the, the you know, strictures on women were incredible. Joan Rivers was eight and a half months pregnant when she appeared on the Ed Sullivan show. And uh, Ed Sullivan would not let her use the word pregnant. Now, she was very obviously pregnant at eight and a half months, you know. You look as if you have a baby elephant in there. And yet pregnant, you know, this was a reference to sort of bodily functions in the physical life of women that was just seen as intolerable on national television. 
So, you know, you compare that with, uh, uh, you know, she, and she fought with him and she lost that battle because it was his show. But over the years, she started to talk about things in her humor that nobody had ever talked about before. You know, I mean, abortion jokes, you know, things like that. And today, all of the hottest names in comedy are young women. And they talk about, you know, their urinary tract infections and their periods and all these things that, you know, Ed Sullivan would be rolling in his grave. Of course, so many of these young women comedians today talk about and look to Joan Rivers for inspiration. Oh, they all cite her as having been, you know, uh, their role model. Uh, she had an enormous influence on the ones who came after her. You know, when people would tune in to see her during the years that she was Johnny Carson's favorite uh, substitute guest host, you know, nobody had ever seen anything like what she was doing on national television. Uh, there were no late-night uh, talk show hosts who were women, and, um, you know, almost no women in stand-up. So, uh, she, you know, she had, like Lenny Bruce, this electrifying impact on, on younger women. I mean, they, their reaction was like, oh, my God, I didn't know you could do that, you know? And she emboldened a lot of them that I interviewed to, uh, you know, to go into the field and uh, to start breaking barriers of their own, as they all continue to do. Was Rivers aware that she was a trailblazer in this regard, that she was really setting the table for, for future women in comedy? I don't think... She never set out to... She, she's almost the same age as Gloria Steinem, but Joan never set out to change the world. She never set out to uh, effect social change. I think she was just mad. She was mad about all the sexist double standards that afflict women. You know, she talked a lot about ageism and, uh, you know, the incredible um, prejudice around beauty for women. She was furious that some women were born beautiful, like Elizabeth Taylor, who was also around her age. And she felt that fate had deprived her of this, you know, crucial asset. So she complained a lot about these sexist double standards where, you know, nobody wanted a woman around unless she was young and beautiful, but a man could be 90 years old and, you know, all he had to have was a pulse. And, you know, if, if he didn't have a pulse, you know, the hostess would still say, bring him to the dinner party, we'll prop him up, you know. <laughs> so uh, those things made her angry, but I think that she was expressing them out of personal frustration rather than a feeling of, I'm going to change the world and make the world into a better place for women. Although, of course, over time, she did change the world and she did make the world a better place for women in the sense that she liberated both them and the culture, and uh, the culture now permits you know, uh, infinitely more truth-telling by women about their own experiences in life about things that they used to be expected to sort of, you know, sweep under the rug and not talk about. Once she had a little taste of success in the comedy world, talk about uh, coming back to this drive and ambition that we talked about at the start, how she really catapulted from that and how hard she worked. Well, she spent, as I said, a decade beating her head against a wall that just wouldn't give. I mean, she was a complete failure. And then in one of those incredible stories of overnight success that takes years of suffering, she became a star with a single appearance. The first time they booked her on Johnny Carson's Tonight Show, Johnny loved her and said, oh, my God, you're really funny. You're going to be a star. And by the next morning, she was. So after that, she sort of 
soared to you know the heights of uh, the time. She was called the queen of comedy in a cover story in People magazine, and she became very successful. But you know, personally, it was sort of as though the performing turned her into a, a junkie. Really, she just craved the audience response so much. During those years, she was married and she had a child and her family life was very important to her. But she was addicted to performing, particularly stand-up, and she did it until she died. I mean, literally, the night before she went into you know, the, the clinic to have the procedure that ended her life, uh, she did stand-up. And everybody who was at that performance said, oh my God, she was unbelievable she was just on fire and she was 81 she was still schlepping all over the country taking red eyes to remote places you know in the middle of nowhere to some little dive she would go anywhere in order to be able to perform and to elicit that reaction from an audience because uh, to her that was what made life worth living talk about her comedy writing and her creation of material well she uh was uh, from the very beginning, people were just astounded at her work ethic. Uh, you know, a lot of people, um, you know, use writers, and she at times did, but she wrote her own material basically from the beginning all the way through to the end. And she was infamous for having all of these index cards, supposedly 10,000 of them, with jokes on them, her archive for, from her entire career. And she kept on writing new material, as I said, until she died. An awful lot of comics, and mo frankly, most male comics, start to phone it in after a while. You know, you see them perform, and they're doing basically the same material they did a couple of decades earlier when they get older. But she never did. She updated, you know, I mean, she was fat-shaming Elizabeth Taylor in the 1970s before fat-shaming was even a, a term. And, you know, toward the end of her life, she just, you know, uh, shifted right into fat-shaming Lena Dunham when Lena Dunham started taking off her clothes on the HBO series Girls for the sex scenes. Um, Joan was so outraged by the fact that Lena Dunham was not as, you know, had, didn't have a sort of a Hollywood standard female body. She said uh, that uh, HBO should rep be reported to The Hague for, you know, and sued for crimes against humanity for letting Lena Dunham disrobe on camera. Um, so, you know, she knew that Lena Dunham was, you know, the very young sort of hip new thing. And she kept up, and she worked so hard, and people were just astonished because she would write her jokes on, in magic marker on sort of poster board and tape it to the floor of a stage. So as she's pacing the stage doing her stand-up routine, she could look down and see <laughs> if she'd forgotten any jokes. Um, you know, using cue cards at that age after you've been doing it for 60 years is pretty, you know, a pretty amazing level of perfectionism and, you know, just a determination never to 
to start letting your standards slip. Usually uh, that is not the case after that many years uh, at the top. It was also because, to your point earlier, she was always coming up with new material. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you, you obviously, uh, <laughs> it's, a, it's an incredible feat of memory. One of the comedy experts that I interviewed said, you know, people do a lot of different kinds of comedy. Sometimes it's, you know, sketch comedy or sort of narrative form. But Jones was basically just rapid-fire jokes. And, you know, you get up there and try to remember uh, 400 jokes that you're going to do in, in one set and shape them into a coherent uh, artistic whole, that is an unbelievably demanding physical, mental, and emotional, as well as a performing uh, feat. And uh, very few people can carry that off, and, and she could. And, you know, she went out on top. She was just yeah, people who, you know, saw her in the last year or two of her life said, you know, she had never been better. You mentioned her overnight success that wasn't really came <laughs> from her appearance on Carson back in 1965, an appearance that Bill Cosby, in fact, had suggested. Talk a little bit about her relationship with Johnny Carson, because it was clearly an important part of her life, well, even yes, when it went a, badly. A pivotal, uh, both on the way up and on the way down. Um uh, she claimed that that Bill Cosby had suggested that Carson put her on, but the actual booker on the show says that that isn't true. And Joan was just trying to benefit from an association with Cosby when he was very, you know, back when he was very popular. But uh, Johnny Carson uh, really liked her. She was supposedly a girl comedy writer um, when she came on, and. He felt they they had very good chemistry. He was only eight years older than she was, but uh, she considered herself his surrogate daughter. And, you know, they bantered very well on camera. Um, And as I said, she finally was chosen as the permanent substitute guest host for The Tonight Show. The problem was that over the years, she began drawing higher ratings than any of the men who sometimes substituted for Carson, and she also started drawing higher ratings than Carson. So they arrived at a crisis in the mid-'80s when Joan's contract was up for renewal and she couldn't get anyone to return her calls. And she and her husband, Edgar, who was her manager, started to panic because they thought NBC was going to, you know, um, betray them. And uh, so they decided that uh, somebody leaked a memo to Joan that ostensibly contained a list of the 10 people that might uh, succeed Carson when he retired. He had not yet decided to retire, but he was getting older, and obviously that was in the future. And all of the 10 names were men, and Joan wasn't on it, and she, of course, was the guest host, uh, the substitute host, and she had the highest rating, so she should have been at the top of the list. So this was direct evidence that, that uh, you know, NBC was going to pass her over. So they, she and Edgar negotiated a deal with uh, uh, the Fox Network, which was starting at the time and needed a, a big name to host a show to put it on the map. And Joan became the first late-night television talk show host who was a woman uh, in network history, which was a big deal. But the problem was she didn't tell Carson uh, before he found out from other people, right before it was going to be announced. And he felt as though, you know, she was a traitor. She had completely betrayed him. 
And he never spoke to her again. And uh, she was banned not only from The Tonight Show, but from NBC. And she became a pariah in, you know, many sectors of show business because people thought that uh, she was such an ingrate and had treated Carson so badly. So she goes off to Fox and does this show. But the problem is that uh, her husband, who is her manager, as I said, was the producer of the show. And he, he didn't do a good job. And uh, she, she was told by Barry Diller, who was running Fox, to fire her husband. And she refused. She chose her husband. She thought that Fox was bluffing and would never fire her. And she guessed wrong. So Fox fired her and Edgar. And uh, Edgar was so shattered by this failure that he committed suicide. And all of a sudden, when Joan is 54, she, her career is in ruins. She finds out that Edgar has squandered all of her money on bad investments, and she's $37 million in debt. And uh, she is, uh, you know, a complete outcast in the entertainment industry. And her life looked really hopeless, and she considered killing herself because, you know, uh, show business is an unforgiving business for even young women, but for middle-aged ones, it's, you know, it, it would seem to be impossible odds to come back from that. And yet she did it. Her sheer drive carried her into this triumphant later phase of her life in which she accomplished astounding things, including building a billion-dollar business of which she was CEO, where she designed and sold things on QVC. Um, that's quite something for a senior citizen. What was it that enabled her to find that reserve, to do that, to rise like the phoenix from that situation? She had a motto. Her motto was, never give up, never quit. And when she wrote this, she would write, never, 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 with about 18 exclamation points. And that was really it. She just refused to stay down. And, you know, as I said, when everything fell apart in her mid-50s, she thought about giving up. And, and most people would have kind of slunk away into oblivion, you know. But she didn't. And, you know, she not only had a 60-year career um, in which she, you know, was a stand-up comedian and, as I said, you know, became a designer and a CEO and all these other things, but she wrote more than a dozen best-selling books you know, fiction, uh, self-help books, memoirs. She was a Broadway playwright and actress. She was a Hollywood screenwriter, director, and a movie actress. Uh, she did reality TV. She did online shows. Um, she did radio shows. It, it, the list just went on and on, and she was always pushing herself to take on new opportunities. People said she would do anything for a paycheck, and part of it was money-driven. She was never too proud to take a job, uh, no matter what it was. And that served her well as she got older, because, um, you know, she, she took on a lot of new opportunities that if she had not felt so driven both by the need for money and by the need for acclaim, she might have just said, oh, why bother? But they resulted in, you know, this constant process of, of artistic growth. And, uh, you know, each opportunity breeds new opportunities. So her life kept on expanding in these really creatively fulfilling ways. 
as I said, through her 60s and 70s and into her 80s, which is, you know, remarkable. Very few people can say that. Did the pain of that experience make her funnier? Well, she always believed in turning anything into humor. She refused to accept the idea that there were any boundaries of taste or propriety. And after her husband killed himself, you know, nobody would hire her to do stand-up because it's not funny when someone commits suicide. Uh, And when she finally managed to get a gig, she said she realized she had to, you know, that was the kind of 900-pound elephant in the room, and she had to defuse that. So she she barges on stage and starts cracking jokes about her husband's suicide. And this is only a few months after the fact. You know, and the audience laughed and was relieved because she had kind of said the unsayable. And then they were able to move on. And that was kind of her philosophy. She felt that there should be nothing you couldn't talk about. And she would do it just to rile people up, which she loved to do. Leslie Bennett, the book is Last Girl Before Freeway, The Life, Loves, Losses, and Liberation of Joan Rivers. Leslie, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Well, thank you for having me. I think she's a very inspiring story in this era of lengthening lifespans. There's a lot of talk about people reinventing themselves in later life, but I don't think anybody has ever done it bigger and better than Joan Rivers. So we all have a lot to learn from her example. Indeed. Leslie Bennett, thank you so much.